0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. My guest on the podcast this week is Todd Hargrove. Todd is the author of two books, A Guide to Better Movement and Playing with Movement. He's a Rolfer and Feldenkrais practitioner who's been interested in the science of movement, the science of pain for many years. Todd and I have actually been um, hanging out and chatting and thinking about these things together for six or seven years now and uh, and he's been super inspirational to me as a thinker. He's got wonderful, his books are absolutely wonderful. So I'm really excited to share his insights with you again and it really connects with a lot of the themes that we've been talking about, um, about dynamic systems and emergent phenomenon and how play is our best guide for solving a lot of these movement problems that we have. So this is a super interesting conversation. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to mention, if you guys are interested in learning more and, and experiencing some of this for yourself, we have an event coming up called the Autumn Retreat, which is a four-day intensive in uh, October 3rd through the 6th, which we're just announcing. So go ahead and check out Um We'll put the link in the in the description and you can go uh, come in and join us. So that's that's what's coming up. We've also got two-day seminars coming up in Austin, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And would love to see you guys there. And we are, I'm really excited to announce we will be offering uh, some online courses coming up in August. So if you want to be on the beta for that, again, you're going to want to email us and all that's going to be in the description. So without further ado, Todd Hardworth. Todd, welcome back on the Evolve Move Play podcast. I was Thank just you. Looking back and uh, listening to our first podcast and realized it's been three years since we've uh, recorded an episode together.
1: Took me that long to write a second book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, I'm excited to have you. You know, you and I are good friends. We get together regularly for drinks, but it's going to be really fun to be able to dig deeply into these ideas with you. Um, so your, your most recent book is called Playing With Movement. Yes. And so your first book was called A Guide to Betterment. So if we're looking at and making movement better, why is play such an important kind of heuristic to look at uh-huh. and or a guide to look at? And why did you make that the theme of your most recent book?
1: Yeah, well, I I got interested in the idea of play, uh, kind of the way I understand it is uh, in rough contrast to work. So, uh, and I think of it as a way to solve uh, a problem. So, I mean, we all kind of know play when we see it, when we see kids or animals playing around, but there's also kind of another aspect of it, uh, which is like the way a scientist or an artist would solve a problem. They kind of play around with the problem. So it's not just about going out and doing like childlike things. Uh, so I think of play, like I say, in rough contrast to work. So if you're playing with solving a problem, you're, uh, you're having fun doing what you're doing. It's like an intrinsically motivating thing to do. Uh, you use a lot of kind of intuition and curiosity and exploration. And things just kind of, you end up solving your problem, things just kind of tend to work themselves out and you don't know exactly how it happens. Mm-hmm. That's in contrast to like working with a problem where you're using a lot of rational planning, you're using measurements, maybe scientific techniques. What you're doing might not be that fun. You're only doing it to achieve some external purpose. And so I was thinking about this distinction in the way we solve what I call movement problems, like trying to be a healthier person, have, have better function, get rid of pain, or something like that. And I think we've kind of struck the balance more towards work and away from play Uh, in trying to become a better mover, and the book is basically about that subject.
0: Okay, so you said we're we're too much work-oriented yeah, and not enough play-oriented. Yeah. How we're generally solving problems with movement. One of the things that I found interesting about the structure of the book is it's sort of you look at a bunch of different topics and then um, point out how our models may be missing Kind of the right type of information, or they assume that we know more than we do, Yeah. and then how we might use play as a uh, as a guide towards getting better solutions. Yeah. So you look at how we can get fitter. You look at how we can acquire skills more effectively. You look at how we can overcome pain. Yeah. How we can be healthier? I think you even talk about nutrition a little bit.
1: Just, a, I think it's a good analogy for what I'm talking about, but I don't have a chapter on chapter nutrition. Yeah, the idea is that uh, movement health, moving better, feeling better, being a healthy, capable mover is a complex multidimensional thing, so you need your nervous system to be working right, you need your immune system to be working right, musculoskeletal system, there's psychological factors, there's social factors, and the working with movement kind of approach, the kind of really scientific way to do things, is to try to go isolate any one of those factors and work on that one factor. You know, using objective measurements, stuff like that. And I'm kind of pointing out that this is such a complex, interwoven, multi-dimensional entity that that's often very effective, sometimes even destructive, and a more kind of like holistic way of doing things, just going out there and doing it. It can sometimes be a much more effective way to adapt yourself to whatever, demands you're encountering and solve the problems that, that that you want to solve. So it's kind of like a, there's kind of like a keep it simple stupid uh, idea. There's kind of like a, a little knowledge is dangerous idea going on. And there's also um, the idea that we learn through trial and error, really immersing ourselves in a certain situation, being curious about things, exploring around this vast territory of complexity, and getting where we're going much more through this curious exploration than like following a detailed map to a precise location.
0: Well, you just mentioned the word complexity quite a few times there, and you make a really nice distinction in the book between complex and um, complicated problems. This is something that I I was just recently discussing with John Brevakey as well. You know, he talked about ill-defined versus well-defined problems. Mm -hmm. So I want you to go over and kind of review what is a complex problem versus a complicated problem and why would you want maybe to use play more to solve a complex problem?
1: Yeah, so first part, great great question. So this is kind of what got me very interested in this whole idea which kind of led me towards the book. I read this article, it was about uh, reform of the healthcare, the Canadian healthcare system of all things and the authors used this distinction between complicated problems and complex problems. I'd never heard it before in everyday life. These are kind of synonyms, but to people that study complexity, they're different. So the best way to illustrate is with like an example. So a complicated problem would be like fixing your car engine when there's a problem with it. So a car engine, you know, like a human body, got many, many different parts, they interrelate in complicated ways. Uh, Difference between that and a human body is that with a car engine, we can kind of get our heads around every single part there, measure them very well, we can take them apart discreetly, we can know how they all interact. So if you've got a problem with your car, it's a complicated problem, you can isolate the one thing that's wrong with that car, it's in the carburetor or whatever, Deal with that one thing in relative isolation to the other problems and solve the problem, like fix the problem. That's something we've tried to do with bodies for a really long time, like with your physical therapy model. Someone comes in and says it hurts here. A lot of physical therapists like directly apply like a car model. Oh, we're gonna look at your mechanics. We're gonna find the thing that's wrong. Your psoas is too tight or something like that. Uh, but what you find out is you're dealing with a complex problem. Like the car, there's tons of different variables. They interrelate in complicated ways, but there's too many to measure. All of the different parts kind of bleed into one another. So you've got, uh, uh, you know, strength is kind of like coordination and coordination is kind of like strength. So you can't treat those as two totally discrete things. You can't measure all of the different variables that might matter for pain. Uh, And they're interacting so dynamically that if you mismeasure in any one area, you're gonna be like way off the mark. So this is why in an area like economics, predicting what's gonna happen in the future, if you ask 10 different economists what's gonna happen, uh, you're gonna come up with 10 different answers. If you go to a physical therapist with a with a back problem, you might get 10 different answers about why it hurts. Uh, because it's gonna be very hard to figure out exactly the one thing that's uh, causing a back problem.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I'm working with a client right now who has an Achilles tendon pain. Yeah. And, you know, he's been trying to isolate, isolate, isolate. What's one exercise that I can do Yeah. build it up? And I was explaining this basic model of complicated versus complex problems, and I was saying, like, you've been in pain for, for months now. It's not like this is an acute injury. We know what's happening. Um, you're, it could be emotional. It could be psychological. It could be general inflammation versus any number of other things. It could be a biomechanical thing. It could be... Um, any number of benefits. An
1: environmental thing. Environmental or it could be sh- the shoes he's wearing. Yes. Yeah.
0: And so I can't give him a, a, a formula. Right? It's not a formula. Yeah. It has to be... Uh, basically, the way that... Um, that Ravicki described this, which I really liked, was an algorithm is something that gives you a precise answer. Right? Right. An, al- an algorithm isn't just a, a numerical formula. It's actually anything that allows you to work through a problem and come up with exactly the precise answer. Right. Whereas A heuristic recognizes that you're working in a space that's too big to sample the entire space. Right. So you can't find the ultimate optimum. You can just find a a sufficient optimum.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really like that for movement. So we're really attracted to the idea of finding an algorithm that will make you a better mover. If this, then that. Do exactly this number of sets, do exactly this number of reps. So you end up with these highly uh, specified programs for working out and the promise is that if you follow this program, you're gonna get this result. Uh, But like you say, I think a, a heuristic that would be more effective is something like You don't wanna do too much, but you don't wanna do too little. Something like the said principle that says you're gonna get specific adaptations uh, to impose demands, so you end up with like a very common sense problem to solve a lot of motor problems, which would be start doing the thing that you want to do, not too much and not too little, in in as representative a way as possible, and guess what, your body adapts to those demands.
0: It's like you can, with an engine, you can sample the entire space of things that could potentially be wrong with it, and you can find exactly right. what's wrong with it. But when you're looking at a body, you can't actually do that. Yeah. So what you end up having to do is apply a set of heuristics, right? Yeah. So um, in general, you know, these things help, right? Like when I look at my knee, you know, I had a bunch of knee pain recently. Um, and I was like, well, maybe I'm having some dysfunction at the knee, maybe I'm having dysfunction at the foot, maybe I'm having dysfunction at the hip. Maybe if I make them all work better by playing around and seeing what makes my knee feel better. Kind of
1: like shotgun techniques, yeah.
0: Yeah, then, then we'll get somewhere. And that's precisely what worked, right? It was yeah. Like, I, I never figured out exactly why my knee hurt. Right? Yeah. I didn't know the exact precise dysfunction, but I knew that generally having a better hip, a better foot, and a better knee function in all these ways results in less pain.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the way I would go about dealing with a knee problem. If I had a knee problem, I would think, well, you know, what are the things that contribute to knee health? Well, you can make the quad stronger. We know that that's a good thing for knees. You can improve mobility uh, at the ankle. You can do, you can just kind of improve the general function over over the whole area. But what we see is a lot of people like really wanting to find the exact algorithm, the, the precise way to deal with the problem. You know, train exactly this one muscle right here, the VMO or something like that. And so what you end up with is uh, a little bit of overestimating your ability to kind of know exactly what's going on there and to get this precise result. But it doesn't mean we can't, you know, know the general direction to go in.
0: Yeah, getting, getting directionally correct is kind of as good as we can do when it comes to physical training, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and I kind of see something similar with uh, periodized training. There's the idea that you can really scientifically figure out, you know, today we're gonna do 70% of your max and the next day it'll be 71% and and it's very hard to know, you know, three weeks down the road exactly what workout is gonna optimize someone's, uh, someone's performance. So what I see is people, yeah, there's a plan, but it's a very flexible plan.
0: Yeah, so, um there's, a, there's something that's interesting that you brought up earlier, which is we, we want to be able to isolate and take things into kind of like small pieces so we can treat them scientifically. Yeah. The reductionist model. Yeah. But we can't really reduce a body to its pieces because we can't take it apart like a machine and put it back together and not have the body function anyway.
1: Right, right. Now that, now that breaks um, the body.
0: <laughs> so, so you're always dealing with, you always have to in some sense deal with the full complexity. Yeah. When we try to break it down and study something and research, we have to, we have to do that. But when we're applying things as practitioners, um, one of the things that, that, that occurs to me is that there's always going to be these emergent effects, right? So, okay, you, you work on your ankle. Maybe wow. the ankle is the problem at the knee. But maybe you don't actually get the synergistic, most powerful solution unless you're mo- working both the ankle and the hip at the same time.
1: Right. Right.
0: And so now you have, it's harder to tease out potential causality there. But you wouldn't know. You wouldn't necessarily have the best solution if you don't allow this to happen. So I was curious if you could go into the the problem of emergent um, emergent uh, emergence in dynamic systems.
1: Yeah, well, I, I guess part, part of the problem is, is that, um, well, unpredictability is really the problem. And, yeah. and the problem is called by immersion. An, an immersion effect in, in, a, in a complex system is one that basically can't be predicted if you just look at the uh, level of the parts. So let's say if you were an ant scientist and you were just studying the behavior of individual ants and you figured out that when a certain pheromone is in the air, they'll do this, or if their neighbor makes a certain body movement, they'll do that you only study them individually, you would never be able to guess that altogether they could form this intelligent colony that could do all these amazing things, that the the colony as a whole is like just as as smart as a human being, it can have architecture, they have slaves, they do all these amazing things. Uh, And that's kind of the way we study the body. You have people that become experts on just the function of one muscle or one joint, and people kind of go in depth studying at the level of the parts. Uh, but you really have to look at the level of the whole uh, uh, to understand what the whole can do because you'll never predict what happens at the level of the whole just by looking at the level of parts in a complex system and again and it kind of suggests this common sense approach where if you're a coach you're dealing with the athlete you have to deal with them on that personal level you'll never be able to know anything about their motivations which is really important or about their psychology social factors like that if you get obsessed with what's going on in parts of their body have to look at that level too but it's just one of the levels
0: sorry to interrupt guys but unfortunately we lost some of the audio here and the question is key to the rest of our discussion so i need to review what we talked about before we get back to the discussion so the question was about um, the levels of movement identified by the russian neurophysiologist Nikolai Bernstein. So Bernstein broke down how we control movement into four layers, A, B, C, and D. And basically these were these corresponded to different layers of of our evolution and our development and 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 they give us a really nice way of viewing the development of different types of movement and how we can teach and control them. So The first layer, layer A, is what he calls the layer of tone. And this is essentially the postural muscles that allow us to stand upright, and the control of those muscles, which happens in relatively deep brain structures that are quite evolutionarily old. So this is the type of thing that even very minimally mobile animals have, and it's the first layer of control that we develop develop developmentally as a child. The next layer, layer b is what we call he calls the uh, muscular articular level it's about the synergy of the muscular system so this is the layer that controls say the lat and the glute interacting to create a extension in the back and this layer uh, this layer is of course very fundamental to locomotion to many things and again Uh, starts to be controlled relatively early in development and shows up fairly early in animals. Something like a grasshopper has a quite developed level B. Um, It can engage a lot of force through muscle synergies, but it doesn't have what we call level C, which is action at the level of space, or it has a limited ability at this level. So level C is essentially about targeted actions. It's about having essentially an awareness of a a space field around you in which you make targeted actions. So really, a lot of our movement is controlled here. Um, Something like throwing is a targeted action, something like hammering a nail is a targeted action. Even running, because we are looking where we're going and we need to hit the ground, is something that is controlled at the third level or level C. Then the last level, the level D, is what are called um, actions. So this is complex motor actions, and these are the most um, evolutionarily novel. So something like lighting a cigarette, which involves a series of fine controlled actions that have to be done in a very specific sequence in order to reach the endpoint is something that very few animals are capable of and humans aren't very good at until quite deep into their development. So this is um, is a, is, the, is kind of a, the latest, most cognitive layer of our movement development. Now, the question that I had for Todd is, he points out that the way that we teach is dependent on kind of the layer that we're looking at. So if we're if we're doing something that's com- primarily controlled at the third layer with control, with support from the second layer for, uh, then we don't necessarily need to engage in as much cognitive or communicative um, control as when we're looking at something that's controlled at that. Fourth layer. So we're going to get into how parkour sits here and this how this relates to the rest of our training. And I'll let you get back now to the interview with Todd. And hopefully that primer will help you understand the rest of the conversation. You, you know, we just had a little technical thing, but we were talking about like where parkour sits on that level to give yeah. people an example. So uh, parkour would be kind of in the area of you know, major locomotive contributions. So it's got to have really well. Yeah developed two right
1: very well developed postural, postural as well too yeah
0: so you have those as, as background layers and then at three you're doing targeted actions in the environment and then at four we're doing kind of complex rehearsed actions yeah so that's the complex specific motor skills like vaults or flips um and then like uh you like to play pool
1: that's all level four you don't get anything else so i, I love pool there's a lot of complex hand and mm-hmm uh motions going on there and uh well this is level three and level four but as far as like the posture goes well it's kind of important you have to line up the right way but it's not a huge challenge and isn't all that good for you either uh there's no locomotive things going on at all really (laughs) so there's lots of things you can do or like a musical instrument Mm -hmm. musical instruments all four and three or something like that and then there's some things you can do which are kind of like all one and two like your uh you know, probably a a lot of your classic uh, types of exercises that people do for overall health, like yoga or weight training. I think uh, the right analysis of Bernstein, uh, as far as weight training goes, is if you're doing these multi-joint types of movements like squats and push-ups and pull-ups, which I love, mostly levels one and two, nothing wrong with that. Uh, And the level three is mostly making sure you start and end in the right place yeah so you know you that and that's probably where your attention belongs for example when you're squatting is not so much okay what's my hips doing what's my what's my uh knees doing what's going on here you should maybe be just thinking about your level of depth or something like that or where your butt's going or like in a a push or like in a press where are you ending up
0: Mm -hmm. so when i'm doing a front flip i need to think about getting a good set right so if i if my, if my hip is too far forward over my foot when I begin the front flip, I won't be able to get any height. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, I have to coordinate that with my arm action. So if my arm action is out of rhythm with my, my foot again, I won't be able to create the tightness or the flip that I need. So it's interesting because I've been, I've been watching a lot of videos recently of, of elite uh, jumpers for like basketball dunks, how they jump. And the way they set their hips up and the way they set up for a jump actually looks a lot like the way that we would set up for a, um, a side flip or a front flip. Now, I don't think that in that context, focusing on the sequence of movements is, is useful, right? So you think about jumping as high as possible. Yeah. Right? To, to just do a, you know, a max jump on a vertex. But I I, I find that I have to, to some degree, at least until the movement is controlled and really well-developed, I have to pay attention to getting the block right, getting the tuck right, getting the arms coordinated to do a front flip, effectively. So I think there's a really interesting kind of example of, like, when do we need to be, how do we pay attention and kind of, like, where is the level of control optimized?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where you direct your attention is, is is incredibly important. I think with these complex, multi-step um, types of movements, you're going to have to break them down into smaller movements until those are kind of fairly automatic, and they can then they can be executed without you paying attention at all, you know, with your attention being elsewhere. Uh, and then at some point, once you get all the subparts, then you're going to probably have to pay attention to where one Subpart part transitions into the next until that's automatic and you can pay attention to, like, you know, fighting the bad guy while you're flipping through the air and <laughs> you're drawing your sword or something like yes. that. <laughs> that's,
0: that's what we're all about.
1: Because <laughs> in the end, that's what we all want to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's ninja training. Um, so you, you started talking about, uh, so we're talking about uh, direction of attention, right? And this yeah. is a, a huge thing I'm, I'm really curious about um, you know, you hear these cues all the time, like squeeze your glutes, yeah. like fire transverse abdominis. You know, uh, one thing that really bothers me is there's a lot of people teaching movement, teaching, say, jumping, and they'll cue something like do a quarter-depth squat, right? Swing your arms this way. When you land, do this with your arms.
1: Uh-huh. Right.
0: Um, and what I found is that invariably if you strip away the cues from people who've been schooled in a system like that, they perform better. Yeah, um, And you'll notice that people who have that, they do very robotic movement. It's interesting, because we, we talked about this earlier, this idea that there's a mechanical approach to movement and let's say an ecological approach to movement. And, and I, I've started to think that for a lot of movement, and again, we're kind of getting at where that breaks down, but for a lot of movement, when you try, apply mechanical thinking, it actually makes the ecological problem worse. Yep. And you see people have these very robotic qualities of movement yeah. coming out of these schools. And um, so I'm, I'm just curious how how you think about where, do you, when do you use an external versus an internal focus of attention? And, and, and what does the research kind of tell us about how to direct our attention to optimize
1: yeah, but so there's a decent amount of research, you probably know a lot of it by Gabriel Wolf where uh, they're comparing external versus internal attention for... Uh, Performance and, and motor learning. And in general, it shows that the external attention is better than the, than the yeah. internal. So the external would be to use your example about jumping, you should think about you know reaching your hand as high as you can to the sky or exploding off the floor where your attention is outside your body, and the internal would be, you know, extend powerfully from the hips or squeeze your glutes or something yeah. like that. And there's all these studies that show that in wide variety of circumstances, people are going to perform better and learn better with the external attention. Uh, the internal attention, they think that it doesn't work as well because there's kind of like a paralysis by analysis effect. So, I mean, you want your, for the most part, your coordination to be organized in this really kind of bottom-up kind of manner. Yeah. As opposed to top-down, if those distinctions may, may make sense. Yeah, actually, I think yeah. it's,
0: it's a really useful concept, and I think that a lot of people don't necessarily have that verbiage. So, just for a second, can you talk about... What top-down versus bottom-up means, and how you might think about that in relationship to movement specifically.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I'll just use an example from like the way an economy is organized. Economy is kind of like a body, and you've got all these different things interacting to to produce an output. Uh, the top-down way of organizing economy would be like a communist central control, control and command thing, where where you try to rationally plan out every single thing that happens there and issue commands all over the place to get it done. And then the the opposite would be the bottom-up form of organization, which would be like a free market where an invisible hand gets all of the organization done. There's no central control at all. All of the intelligence that gets the job done is totally distributed throughout all these different people and you can kind of analogize that to the body. You can, if, you try to, if you try to walk by saying, I'm going to fire my peroneus longus <laughs> right now and I'm now gonna activate this muscle and that muscle, it's too much information, you can't get the job done. It's better if you just kind of flow naturally, pay attention to something else, and then all of these reflexive local things happening in your body will kind of self-organize better without the, the, your self-consciousness kind of getting in the way. Because I, I think we know the feeling of like, being self-conscious makes you stiff and awkward and robotic in your movement, and that's like exactly the idea of why internal attention might compromise you.
0: So, um a few things that I wanna go on there. One is like, I was going back to the ants, right? Because the ants are also actually bottoms up.
1: Totally bottom behavior. up. There's, the queen is not issuing plans and saying, you ant, go over there, you ant, go over there. So
0: they have a, a very simple set of sort of behavioral options, Yeah. and then they have some sort of communication systems that distribute information through, yeah. the, uh, through the group, and then this, this um, interesting behavior emerges. Yeah. and the same thing is basically true at the level of the economy it's so like even how your brain works right um, so then when we're controlling movement uh, we you know so we have to have some level of top-down stuff
1: so yeah it's, it's always always playing a role but yeah. it's playing the proper role
0: yeah yeah so then there's there's um, uh, sorry I' kind of got a lot of thoughts that are that are getting stuck and uh, uh, trying to articulate here but you um just like in economy, you it's not just disorder, right? There, there are specific incentives or specific sort of virtuous cycles that get set up that allow the economy to work. Yeah. In the same way the body has these communication systems and these muscle synergies that are built in or, or pattern generators that are built in that allow yeah. this very complex thing. To, uh, to control itself.
1: Yeah, well, this is the role of the top-down mind. It, it, it forms a very clear intention of what you want to do. Yeah. If you don't have a clear intention of what you want to do, well, if you have no intention of doing anything, yeah. nothing's gonna happen, but what you want to do is uh, form a very, very clear intention of exactly where what you want to do. Like, for example, with a um, hitting a target, yeah. uh, you, you really need to intend to hit the target. Think, and, and, and your attention also goes towards that target. So if you really focus really well on your target and intend to hit it, that's what's going to really prompt your body to get organized to get that done for you. That's gonna work better than you put in all of your attention on, oh, what's going on in my body? What's going on with my wrist? What's going on in my arm? Sometimes those things are important while you're practicing, but in the game, the attention really, and intention is on something out, is on the goal.
0: Yeah, so I was practicing yesterday doing parkour and I was working on a jump. And, uh, and I, uh, I noticed there was some problem in my attention and then I went back and tried to fix it. But then I, I noticed that, that I was still basically attending to the problem of my attention instead of attending to the landing. Right? Yeah. And so, um, there's two targets in a, in the jump that I was doing, cause I had to run and jump off a precise takeoff and land on a precise thing. Yeah. So now there's a, there's a problem because it's like, how do you distribute your attention within the specific time frame that you have. So it's like, as I'm running up, do I have like 80% of my attention on the first target, 20% on the second target, and when does my attention f- uh, shift? Yeah. These are the kind of problems that are that are really... That's why this
1: stuff's interesting. That's yeah. why people geek out on about it, and that's why when you see a great athlete doing something amazing, you respect their mind. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. It, people don't realize... I, I think people, like myself, I'm more and more thinking how much... Getting your attention trained correctly and getting your psycho-emotional states regulated correctly is 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 so um, is such the biggest part of performing well in movement, right? Because you can be very powerful, um, and if you're inhibited, if you're scared when you're trying to apply that power, it's yeah. not going to work.
1: Yeah. It reminds, it reminds me of, is there a quote by some famous climber that like, dude, why'd you fall? And he's like, I was thinking about a sandwich. <laughs>
0: something like <Yeah>. that. <laughs> no, this is something I noticed very early on in my parkour career. Like almost every fall that I had happened because of a lapse of attention. Yeah. Like my m- mind would just wander somewhere at the wrong uh-huh. time. Um, so I've actually been doing a lot of meditation recently, and I'm very curious to, the, to what degree I can meditate myself. I'm going use focus meditation to become better at noticing the right thing to pay
1: attention to. Yeah, is this like a general muscle of attention that you can learn to focus, and then and then it's transferable to other areas? I mean, so they say, maybe.
0: Well, that's the question, <laughs> that's right? That's the question, yeah. <laughs> so, but I think that, you know, we, we this might be a thing that you can intend transferring, or you can use to transfer it. Right? I can train my attention. I can do meditation right before my training, and then I can try to link that mind state into the moment and try to figure out how I how I get my attention better, using say the tool of a or whatever, within the context of parkour.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's an interesting question. I mean, I do a little bit of meditating, and I feel like there's carryover to other parts of my life, and. Uh, you know, to use my boring pool analogy, I practice pool all the time, and uh, man, there's not much to do except for pay attention to the right thing at the right time, <laughs> it's a real challenge.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that, that sequencing of attention and paying attention to the right thing and not getting distracted uh, is so powerful, and it's also just a really great thing to unnotice about life in general, and, uh, you know.
1: Yeah, it controls your experience of life, what you attend to.
0: What you attend to. Um, so I wanted to go back for a second and talk about something. Um, while, while we had our technical lift, we were talking off camera a little bit about complexity and dynamic systems. And, um, you know, once once sort of Michael gave me that direction of that what I was doing is already within the dynamical systems kind of framework, I started digging into Bernstein. I started listening to the Perception Action podcast with Rob Gray. Started, um, you know, reading things in this area. I noticed that uh, Steve Morris, who I really respect, is sort of already deep in this in, uh, in talking about... Um, uh, kind of self-defense and movement from okay. that perspective, from a dynamical systems perspective, but uh, but I can never quite articulate what a dynamical systems actually was, <laughs> <laughs> like what complexity actually is. Yeah. And I think I've I think I've got a, a pretty good handle on it just recently after talking to John Verveke recently. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what's your kind of view on this? There's it seems like there's a lot of fields that are that are thinking about. You might say that reductionism took us a long way in developing our scientific models but we're bumping up against all these problems that reductionism doesn't sort of solve for us yeah and we had to develop a new set of of ways of solving problems yeah and it seems to be coming out of tons of different areas that we're getting similar insights what does that kind of field look like to you
1: yeah so my understanding is definitely not an expert in uh complexity science but um Somewhere in around the 20th century, reductionist science is bumping up, like you say, against these limitations in in complex areas like economies, lots of biological things, uh, the weather, and so they're starting to look for like different tools for understanding these systems, looking at the system at a different level uh, because you can't. Do very well studying the system just by looking at the level of the parts. Uh, so you've got within the kind of the general umbrella of complexity science, you've got like systems theory and general systems theory, and you know chaos theory and fractals and uh, dynamic systems theory, and th- there's all these kind of different names for different formal systems with different like tools and concepts. But there's but, but there are some kind of commonalities to all these different formal systems, and and. Uh, Well, actually, if you look at any of them, they'll say, you know what, we have to admit, we we can't define complexity. (laughs) We don't have a strict definition for it, but we kind of know it and we see it, and there's kind of all these different factors that you see that we're kind of talking about. One of them is emergent effects that's maybe like a almost a defining uh, character of them, which again is the idea that you can't understand the whole by looking at the parts. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's kind of really basic. Another is there's nonlinear effects. So in other words, if you keep adding one thing to the system, you're not gonna see a change always happening in the same way. It might go up, it might go down, might be no change at all with a certain input, and then there's a huge change. Yeah,
0: let's stop there for a minute because I think that's really interesting. I think we can tie it back to movement and make it Relevant to this audience yeah. is uh, that non-linearity I think is uh, one really good example of that is like the t- phase transitions we see in movement, right? So if you're if you're walking at say two miles per hour, yeah, and then you're walking at two and a half miles per hour, there's not really a fundamental change. It's the same
1: think. basic thing going on,
0: but all of a sudden you know going from say four and a half to five miles per hour, yeah, I don't know where the tr- uh, transition point is, the in order for the system to organize itself effectively, it has to go from walking to running.
1: Right, right. And
0: that's a non-linear thing, right? It's like...
1: It's a non-linear shift in the behavior of the system. And it's uh, they call it a phase shift mm-hmm. because the quality of what's going on Totally changes kind of rapidly, yeah. and you see it, even better than like humans walking to running, the way like a horse would change its gait. I don't know, they've yeah. got a gallop and a trot mm-hmm. or these different things, and th- this just kind of self organizes. Yeah. All the horse has to do is just intend to go a little bit faster, and then it will spontaneously shift into this whole different pattern. Yeah,
0: <laughs> the horse doesn't think. You know, okay, I'm walking on a four yeah. beat, next I need to do contralateral two <laughs> beat.
1: Yeah, yeah, not at all. You wouldn't, and you could never consciously process that information. All you can do is just intend to, you know, get away from the cheetah, and you'll naturally shift into a different pattern.
0: Yeah. So, I, uh, I just sort of kind of brought a piece of this, I think, and I, I was curious to articulate it to you and see what, what came up for you, and what you had to say about it, but, um, when I was talking to Vervecki, he was talking about this idea that you, when you set up sort of two different cost functions, um, and they're competing with each other in some way, that that generates emergent and non-linear effects. And I went and started reading just the Wikipedia article on, on dynamic systems, and that's the basic math of dynamic systems. Dynamic systems comes out of this realization that we, when we create this specific type of equations, they create non-linear effects. Yeah. And... And that may not like, map to anything for people, but there's actually a really beautiful and simple example of that which is evolution. Because evolution is two different functions that essentially compete with each other. One is the generation of variation which happens through mutation. And the other is the generation, uh, basically the selection of that generation, which is uh, the selection of that variation, which is again, which is narrowing variation.
1: Yeah, the creativity and criticism. right? You wanna go out and play, you wanna generate these variable things and people learn through play by kinda like, well, this uh, this is Esther Thelen, Dynamic Systems Theory, talks about how babies learn. She says they just randomly do stuff. They're like, I want that toy. Maybe this will get the toy. (laughs) Maybe that'll get the toy. And they just kind of randomly produce these movements. And uh, sooner or later they get the toy. And then they're kind of more likely to repeat the one that worked. But they're gonna keep on varying their movements to get it more efficiently next time. So there's kind of like random variation and there's selection from this vast possibility of stuff and slow kind of gravitation towards a certain adaptive direction play is a way to kind of ramp up the creativity part of it so you're not stuck in a groove and then what I call work is more about refining or honing something we kind of already know works
0: yeah so so it's
1: not all play you work sometimes too yeah in my absolutely.
0: opinion yeah yeah I mean I, I've you know so I guess I had the same kind of insight right you Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, play helps yeah, you evolve. Sure. Yeah. You know, you know, you joked with me uh, when you were writing this book that it was kind of be a, a book to justify my <laughs> um, in part, anyways. But um, but but yeah, like I I guess you know through the work of Peter Gray, um, well later Peter Gray, but Stuart Brown, Frank Forensic, some of these other people, I became very interested in the idea of play and how play uh, was so powerful and and parkour, I think, is this incredibly interesting sort of Um, ecological experiment super playful right it's super playful it's very open-ended you know there's almost no pedagogy for most people who experience parkour but talk about something you know like runners really haven't gotten faster let's say since the 1930s parkour athletes have exploded in skill in 20 years yeah absolutely it's mind-bending the things that people are doing right um and it's it's all been basically generated through play and and, and that wasn't really understood or articulated. You know, People were talking in, about parkour as like anarcho-environmentalism. <laughs> but nobody was saying this is play. Like My wife wrote her master's thesis on parkour as a form of play. And so I got interested in that, and then I started getting interested in, in how we, we, we just think about how play optimizes movement and human experience in a general way. Um, and that's kind of what, what generated the idea of a with play. And into, I had come in, kind of right before that, I had taken my parkour practice and gotten very professional with it i wanted to be like a pro athlete in parkour. science the shit out of it i was sciencing the shit out of it i was working really hard at being a parkour athlete um and i ended up injured and unmotivated and not having that much fun so i went the opposite direction and i started just playing it was like you know i i I had at one point i had this real tension because i wanted to be a competitive parkour athlete i wanted to to do what would be necessary. And I was like, it's obviously specific adaption to impose demand, right? So,
1: yeah, you, so you're in the gym, you're doing deadlifts, yeah. you are, you're measuring lots of variables, tracking yeah. them, using yeah. that, what I call the work-based approach. Yeah.
0: And, and in order to, all well, the competitions are indoors. So it's like, well, it makes sense for me to train in the gym. But I didn't enjoy training in the gym. I enjoyed training in the trees, which was not a thing really anybody else was exploring at that time. Uh-huh. At but I ended up following my bliss, right? Yeah. Training in the trees. And it was great for a while, and I like I exploded in skill actually when I first just played. Yeah. And I let after all that hard work, I just played for like two years, and my skills just went off uh-huh. the roof. And then I started getting injured. <laughs> I started losing motivation because again I had gone too far in one direction. It's like you need those two cost functions: the discipline and the play. Yeah. Right. If you don't have playfulness, you are stagnant. Right. If you don't have um, discipline, then you're disordered and, you chaotic, hard hard yeah, and, yeah, and chaotic. Yeah, yeah, chaotic, and you don't get anywhere specific. So you have to find this balance.
1: Yeah, that's why. That's why the, right at the beginning of the book, I'm kind of like, there's a balance between these two. Work has its uh, value, but a lot of people are striking the balance too much in the work, and I and I, and I think it comes from that again. Trying to science things up, all the measurement, all of the uh, structuring of things, can take some of the creativity and vitality and intrinsic motivation out yeah, of it, right?
0: I mean, maybe it goes back to like the Protestant work ethic, and, and like there are cultural heritage as well, right? Like we work out.
1: Yeah, we work out. We work out. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> like we think about physical culture through the lens of work, uh-huh. and even the development of physical culture. If you go back historically. Um, it's sort of parallel to the development of, in the industrial revolution, in factories.
1: Uh huh. Right.
0: So a gym is a factory in which you produce mechanically. It's also like machines. a
1: purgatory where you punish yourself for your sins and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Also that. Yeah. Right? Some people, that's motivated. I'm, I'm all cool if that gets them in the gym and it's sustainable and it and it's and it's okay, um, but often it doesn't.
0: <laughs> well. Almost always, it does. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Like, new, new, well, some people
1: are very high in discipline, and they're very good workers, and this is one of the things they work out, and they do get the job done. Uh, you know, I'm probably hanging out with more of those people than, than is representative of the country as a whole. But, but uh,
0: I, mean, I think it's like 96 percent of the population doesn't exercise anymore. Yeah, it's, so, it's it's not it's, it's not, not so a good. Yeah, as an industry. Yeah, we spend something like six billion dollars a year on it. Um, and we have the least po- healthy population ever. Yeah. So, so I think that, that it, the, the argument that it's not working is almost undisputable.
1: It's a, it's a strong argument. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think what you're doing with, with this book, Playing with Movement, and what I'm doing with Evolvement Play is really it's, it's very necessary for this industry and for, for, uh-huh. for growing past some of the problems of the models that we've had. Yeah.
1: Well here, here's something that I'm interested in what, what you think of. I don't know if I've run this one by you before, but I like the idea of I like the idea of getting outside, playing in the trees, all that kind of fun stuff, uh, but it's not for everybody. What about the idea of looking at the gym as a playground, becoming basically literate at, you know, your basic lifts that people tend to find fun? You know, there are some people that go to gyms and kind of see a playground. Yeah. You know, oh, right. look, there's a glute hand machine. or Oh, there's a nice squat rack. Yeah. And I have to confessed to being one of those people. I like going to gyms and doing some of those exercises uh, that for some people are like boring work. So I think it's kind of cool for people to, to, as much as they can, try to understand why some people like going to gym. Because maybe that's the place you're going to end up doing most of your movement anyway. What, what do you think about that?
0: Perhaps. Um, like, I, I'm generally in favor of moving outdoors, right? And I don't think that it... That, that there's any reason why a gym is a necessary part of physical culture. Um, because we have models of something like, if you go back and look at the physical culture in China up until say the last 30 years, like huge numbers of the population are outdoors, in parks, yeah. engaging in uh, Taiji chi, uh, tai chi shuan and qigong. But did
1: you know that engaging. sometimes it's cold outdoors? I have <laughs> trained through it.
0: So, if you're in Grand Prairie, Alberta, you need a gym. We live in Seattle. It right? rains. It and rains. The rain it's is cold. not that damaging. Yeah, it does. You, know, you, you get muddy. You actually won't drown because of the rain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, uh, so I think that, you know, this, I could do a whole other podcast on this about why I think that it's much more nourishing for your body to be outdoors and why you're getting a lot of adaptions that you're not getting indoors. Yeah. But to your point, can, can we use play? to better motivate people within the gym. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I mean, I agree completely. I think that we're, uh, um, again, that biomechanical model, it's missing the motivational component. And there's another thing that play gives us, is because it's inherently enjoyable, well, now we have a way to actually motivate people. To yeah,
1: yeah, and, and uh, one of the things I, I, I point out in the book is uh, you know to your point about outside, yeah, there's a decent amount of research about the benefits of going outside. Some of it seems to be it's less stressful, Uh, there's interesting studies about you get people to run in a treadmill versus outdoors and they self-select a higher pace uh, at lower perceived intensity and it's probably because they're getting feedback that they're actually going somewhere (laughs) as opposed to staring at a wall so you kind of like there's something about being outside you know without a doubt yeah but if you're going to be inside choose the exercises that uh people like and it's almost always the ones that take some skill or you get a sense of personal mastery over getting better at that exercise. So it's usually something that takes skill to do the right way. People rarely get really psyched about getting on a machine where you're moving along a predetermined pathway more likely to like lifting a weight and there's some technique to it and you can kind of read about how to do it better and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think CrossFit, which gets a lot of uh, a lot of hate, actually. It's captured, kind of playful. It captured a lot of really powerful motivational stimulation. Competition, people actually like competition. If you can make it feel safe for them and make them feel like- While well, everyone so moving
1: in a group to the same rhythm?
0: That's the community aspect yep. of it, which is incredibly motivating to people. Um, and yeah, there is actually a little bit of skill development in CrossFit. Um, yeah, there's- so I think uh, I think that you, know, you can see that that's been, as far as you know the fitness world. That's been by far the biggest, most successful thing. Another thing you point out, which I, I think you know a lot of fitness people love to hate on, is Zumba, right? But
1: yeah, you got music. I've never even done it, but uh, you've got music. You've got group dynamics. People show up for Zumba. Yeah.
0: And so it's like, well, uh, these are models that we could use now. Um, you know, I guess. I'm working in the world of the people who are already kind of ready for movement and I'm not trying to convert the, the people who, who aren't there. Right. Um, uh, but I do think that, that fundamentally, like we all, look, every kid wants to climb a tree. And there's no reason really why, um, why those motivations aren't present in adults. Every
1: kid wants to climb a tree, there's no doubt. But kids also want to be with their friends. And if their friends are in playing video games, they're going to choose yeah. the video games. So I guess the way I think of what you're doing is you're kind of like building a community of people that are in the trees, so that you're not the only guy in the trees.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you
1: started out yeah. that you love trees enough to go out there even by yourself. A lot of people are only going to want to go in trees if there's other people in the trees.
0: You're right. It's absolutely the biggest problem that we face in in cultivating this model is uh, is the network effect. Yeah, right? because fundamentally people are primarily social animals, and what's relevant to them is what's relevant to their peers right and i think i'm relatively unique in my ability to to get the intrinsic benefits of an activity whether it's important yeah
1: you're super geek about that kind of thing i can go and play pool all by myself with no pool community to support me i'd be doing better if i had a pool community but
0: it's It's a huge thing and uh and people so that's a that is something that um and also play a community and this is kind of off the top of what we're talking about but Community is probably the biggest missing need that people have in many ways, at least as much as movement,
1: people. Oh, yeah, yeah, like so if it's... you wanted to predict who's going to be healthy or who's not, looking at how much they move is a decent way to do it, but looking at their socioeconomic status and their connect- network of social connections is probably even stronger. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and, you know, if you ask people what what gives meaning to their life, or you ask people what they will remember, what they care about at the end of their life, what they would have invested more in the end of their life, it's always relationships.
1: Yeah, yeah, I said this. Say this in the book. You know, that we 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 try to science up movement. We know that lots of things matters. We tend to prioritize the things that can be measured objectively, and so that's always like your muscle mass or how many sets and reps you do, and then we ignore the stuff that's subjective and fuzzy and not so easy to measure, like community or social things. I, th- I think social is probably the most underrated aspect of. Getting to movement health that there is. Yeah. you say? Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, this something that um, a, a mutual friend of ours, Michael Ham, uh, said to me years ago was, uh, I had had, I think, um, I think it may have been after I tore my Achilles tendon. He said, like, go to the training sessions with your friends. Just start training with them again as soon as possible because you'll heal faster. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because the social support. Will, will change you neuro-hormonally and you will improve the social.
1: So it will always change you yeah yeah I mean like for me it's like I've I've played a lot of soccer over the years yeah. uh and I played a lot of squash I've actually played more soccer even though I'm way better at squash because all my buddies are out in the soccer field yeah. and it reminds me that like I've, I've got a lot of I've got uh, young daughters and I hear a lot of the parents talking about oh my child they seem to really be into soccer but now they're into Baseball or something like that and it's not that they're changed their preference for from soccer to baseball It's that their friends went from, <laughs> from soccer to baseball and their, their preference was the same. They wanted to be with their friends yeah. I mean what people really want is to be in a community that values them And if they've got that it doesn't really matter what activity it is so much.
0: Yeah it, well, At least it matters less
1: it matter, yeah, it matters less, but people really think, oh, I'm just a soccer guy, or I'm just a squash guy, or I'm a parkour guy. There's definitely something to that, but, man, it's the community that really matters.
0: So wrapping this back to your theme, right, playing with movement, right, one of the ideas here is if you want to move, if you want to be healthy, one of the variables you can play with is how do you find yourself in the communities that are going to support you?
1: yeah absolutely you
0: socially in general but support you in in the practices that are meaningful to you
1: yeah and the meaning the meaning part make your movements meaningful make them meaningful to you on a deep level If like uh, going to the gym stairmastering by yourself in an air-conditioned room for many people is totally meaningless yeah. and so uh, doing a movement that's meaningful is is a very different thing to do
0: yeah and um, and you know another aspect of this is kind of I think important to point out is play is a powerful bonding mechanism too so if what we're missing is relational when we when we engage in play not only are we getting the physical benefits you know the pattern generation or whatever it is um, we're also connecting with other people more deeply and something like this stuff that we do where we're roughhousing yeah
1: or, right super or, social
0: or, or even just the the adventuring, right? Going going to do parkour and doing something scary with other people, profoundly bonding. So you have the social element, the community. You can bring the community to it, but you actually get the community more powerfully when you engage in the right kind of practices. Right, right. You know, to uh, to use an example that's not specific to my work, but even playing soccer with a team, right. The fact that you're competing and you're with your team and your team relies on you and that's you, you have a meaningful relationship within the ecology of that team—is going to be, you know, incredibly powerful. In it's a
1: super social thing that's going on. You know, the, did they pass the ball to me? Do I owe them a pass? Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff is—it's is, always happening out there, and it's part of what makes you know the situation meaningful. Or it could make it a terrible experience. It could make it the most positive experience we've ever had. You know? <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. So. I think that this is probably a good point to sort of start to, to wind down this particular interview. We'll definitely have you on again, you know, I uh, uh, love chatting with you. So, the basic themes that we were talking about is complexity, right, dynamic systems, and play. And then we, we tied it into this, this interesting aspect, that something that you and I talk about a lot, which is meaning, which I didn't expect to be one of the topics of, of our conversation, but if people are thinking about, okay, How am I going to bring play into my movement, into my life in a way that's going to afford me, you know, better skill acquisition, better health, better connection, better community, a more meaningful life? Um, What's the, the, you know, the the basic take home message for them?
1: Yeah, I think people kind of have a sense of what's meaningful to them already. I think there's a lot of people that are out there trying to think of the best thing to do in terms of, uh, you know, will this, you know... Is this biomechanically the right thing to do, or what's the best kind of exercise? And I'm like, the best kind of exercise is what you show up for every day, and is very meaningful to you as a person. Um, not always, but, but but that is that is, I think, the most overlooked so aspect. Long as it doesn't injure you. I yeah, think so long is. as it's injuring you. I mean, you know, if you've had a bunch of concussions, and the most meaningful thing to you is boxing, you've got a big problem on your hands, and you've got some hard questions for yourself. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there that. Uh, you know, maybe they loved doing something when they were younger, and now they've got an unreasonable fear that it's bad for them. Uh, play with getting back to that. You know, don't worry too much about you know what your X-ray scan said on your knee. If your knee feels good, start slow and try to make progress.
0: There you go. That's it. Start slow and play with it.
1: Play with it. Yeah, play with Play with it. Tinker with it. One Fool
0: of, around with one it. One of the ideas I, to kind of just refine that idea a little bit. I think what helps a little bit is this idea of heuristics again. So I can't tell you the the perfect sets and reps for right. your knee or the perfect, you know, like, okay, you can play soccer for an hour, but if you play more than that, it's going to hurt you. But what we can is we can sort of use something like, you know, you know, a simple set of variables that you look at. How frequently can you play? How much volume? You know, like, how long is the game? How intense is the game? And then can you vary that? So let's say you're starting to experience knee pain with soccer. It's like, well, what if you play once a week instead of twice a week, right? Yeah. Now, now maybe you can play a less intense game once the knee pain goes away. Yeah. Or maybe you can play three uh, three side instead of 11. Yeah, aside.
1: that's not rocket science. That's a pretty, that's not like a whole spreadsheet of variables, that's kind of simple stuff. And uh, it's amazing how many of my clients have uh, completely overlooked that and think in terms of, either I can run as much as I want, or I can't run at all, <laughs> you know? They say something like, well, have you ever thought of like just running half the time and walking, or what if you just uh, ran only 50% of what you're running now? Um, a lot of people don't think of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that, that is actually one of the things that makes play so powerful, though, is it expands our capacity for creativity, to see smaller changes that we can make. Like when I work with people in play, but I find a lot of times people are stuck in patterns. They can't they can't get outside of the habitual way that they do things. And what yeah. we know from the research is that because play generates novel behaviors, it increases our behavioral flexibility. And so you can start seeing new ways to do things.
1: Yeah, you get you're, you're in a groove and you kind of you get out of your groove. You don't want to get so far out that you're off in some area you don't, you don't where where you are, but introducing a little variation that's maybe unsticks you from a pattern
0: perfect so the book is playing with movement it's available on amazon
1: on amazon kindle and paperback uh website is bettermovement.org
0: yeah and um people can find any kind of upcoming events with you there yes sir cool are you on any other socials people should you can find
1: on? me on twitter todd hargrove facebook better movement
0: cool um well it was a pleasure we'll see you again soon thanks sir Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play Podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.